From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am really excited about this episode. Uh, I know I say that every episode. I'm, I'm excited about them all, but particularly this one. As you know, we've been having in this country a debate about the Senate's Better Care Reconciliation Act, the, the replacement to the Affordable Care Act. The CBO report came out, said it would de-insure 22 million people compared to the status quo. It's being, as we speak, revised. They're trying to make it a little bit more generous, trying to win over a couple more Republicans uh, so it actually has a chance of passing. But this is a very important high-stakes debate in American policy. A lot of people's – honestly, their lives are on the line. And so I've been wanting to have a conversation about this bill that goes a little bit deeper than I think what we're hearing on television and just in general. So I've asked Ovik Roy to return to the program. Ovik has been on the podcast before. He's a Republican healthcare policy expert. He's a co-founder of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, which is a think tank based in Austin, Texas. He is the opinion editor for Forbes. And he has been out front making the case for this bill. He has been – he said it would be the single biggest achievement by a Republican Congress in his lifetime. Uh, and we talk about why he thinks that. We talk about where there is real philosophical wins in this bill and where maybe this bill actually does not go nearly far enough. Uh, his case for it is more nuanced than I think is was maybe clear to me even when he walked in here. Um, this is a podcast where we discuss a lot the different philosophical positions here, what health insurance is for, what the government's role in it should really be. How do you help the, the neediest people? What is reasonable to ask of the neediest people while you're helping them? Uh, it was a really helpful conversation for me in understanding his side of the debate. I think it'll be helpful for, for you all. So without further ado, here's Ovik Roy. Ovik Roy, welcome back to the podcast. Ezra, it's a true honor. So th this is going to be uh, a conversation that I'm very excited to have. I'm not a rookie anymore, so maybe I'll do better this <laughs> You know time. how it goes. So you've been pretty out front arguing that the Senate health care bill is a good bill, like an actually good bill. Mm -hmm. um, so you said it would be the greatest policy achieved by GOP Congress in, in your lifetime. Yeah. Um, I'm going to lay my cards out on the table. I do not agree. <laughs> That's a shocker, Ezra. That is a shocker. And what I want to do in this conversation is not just go through the Senate bill, which we'll do, but also get at the sort of different visions of, of health care that are, that are on tap here. Because one thing I think is more useful about this conversation is the Senate bill does represent a conservative health care vision that was extant before this whole debate. I, I think there's something more there than, than people are quite seeing. It's not – the House bill felt very – out of nowhere to a lot of folks. It didn't represent sort of a long tradition. But here, I think the Senate bill does. So why don't we just start, make your case for the bill. Persuade me 
that this bill would make the health insurance system better? So I would say that to your point, what is the what's the underlying philosophy of this bill? The underlying philosophy of this bill is that covering the uninsured is a good thing, uh, but there are different ways to cover the insured, and that covering the uninsured through private insurance in which people have a tax credit that they can use to shop for the coverage that they want, that that's a better system than expanding coverage through Medicaid, and that in terms of private insurance, to the degree that the ACA also expanded coverage through private insurance and people shopping through coverage on the, uh, the way they want. The the ACA was too narrow in terms of the choices that it gave people to buy insurance, and and to and, and that's sort of that's maybe a little bit more kind of inside baseball-y, bringing it up an, a level from that. What is it that someone like me has wanted for the healthcare system? My argument has been that that there's a conservative case for universal coverage, and that the way to do that is through giving people that individual ability, like Switzerland does, though there are differences between what I want and what Switzerland has. But but ha- giving everyone that option to buy the coverage they want, having that choice, having a robust system of financial support for the sick and the poor to afford that coverage, and that that system is superior to the more classical single-payer type approaches where your choices are more limited and where there's a central authority deciding what's better for you and what's not better for you. And that not only is that you know a better alternative between those two choices – but that it's a better alternative than what a lot of conservatives have thought of as the status quo ante as being superior. You know, it's okay for people to be uninsured. That's limited government. That um, that universal coverage is big government. And what I've tried to argue to conservatives, as you know, Ezra, because we've talked about this so many times in the past, is that the conservative case for covering everybody is that you can do so and spend less money. If you if you care about limited government, we could have less government involvement in the healthcare system and more financial security for poor and sick people through health insurance if we structured the reforms in the right way. And so that's what this bill strives to achieve and makes a lot of progress towards achieving is moving in towards a system in which the people who are poor and sick will have options to buy the health coverage that they want. And if you make the individual health insurance market work for those individuals, then it can work for everybody. If we can successfully make the individual market of for insurance work for the people who are the most vulnerable, then the people who are the least vulnerable will also benefit from that system if it's structured the right way. And then, so this, I see this bill as laying the groundwork for that larger objective. So I wanted to distinguish a couple of things here because I think they're important. So one is that this bill represents, I think you're right, a an admission that it is the government's role. It would be a positive thing for the government to make a significant effort to ensure the poor can afford health insurance, to afford lower middle income people can afford health insurance. That is not the view of all conservatives. Absolutely right. So, you know, uh, for example, Philip Klein, the opinion editor at the Washington Examiner, and Michael Canna at the Cato Institute, who does health policy there, they would argue that there is no legitimate role for the, particularly the federal government. Michael, I should say, gets very mad every time I describe him as a conservative. He's not a conservative. A He's libertarian. libertarian. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but 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 their views yes. are very representative on the right. And I and and you know to your point about why this bill has has you know kind of been structured the way it is and politically why it, why it's challenging. It's because. The right is divided. There are people on the right who believe that uh, the government shouldn't be involved in helping the uninsured. And people like me, as you know, have been very vocal about saying that they should, that the government has a role in helping the poor and the vulnerable afford health insurance. So I think that that's an important thing just for folks to keep in mind, that there, there is a big philosophical shift happening here. And one side of this debate is winning. I think that there, there was a stronger case 
for Republicans um, prior to Obamacare. The, the side of the Republican Party that just did not want to do this tended to win out over the side of the Republican Party that did. And I think one thing Obamacare has done is change the default. That's absolutely and whether right. or not people's opinions have changed, their acceptance of what is going to be politically realistic has strengthened this wing of the party. But, but now I want to talk about this bill itself and, and, and this wing of the party. So I am very sympathetic to the case that there are reasons to prefer a health insurance system based on private insurance. Not sure I believe it, but I'm I'm certainly sympathetic to it. Um, we can we can get into the arguments for and against. And we've talked about that a lot in the past. This bill does not seem to me to do that in a serious way. And 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 here's what I mean by that. When I look at this bill, I see a very large wealth transfer from money we're currently spending on healthcare subsidies for poor and lower middle income people to tax cuts for richer people. That's an optional transfer of wealth, right? They don't have to do that. They could use that money to spend it on buying better private insurance for the poor. And because they do that, they end up not doing a one-to-one between government insurance like Medicaid and equivalent private insurance. They end up putting people into private insurance that is extremely, extremely high deductible, high cost sharing and spare compared to what Medicaid offers them. So much so, I mean, to, to put numbers on this, CBO estimates the plans a bill is structured around would be roughly a $6,000 deductible for an individual making $10,000 a year. That's not viable, right? That, that to me does not even count as insurance on some level. It will basically bankrupt you to use it. And, and so that's where I have trouble with this case. I'm very open to the poll that I think you represent here. But it has not looked to me like this Senate bill really it, – it's almost like a compromise between the not actually – buying people coverage part of the Republican Party and the part that does want to get people coverage. If you are really trying to give people good private insurance that works the way we think good private insurance works, it doesn't seem to me that you would be buying them this kind of insurance. I think that that position from your vantage point is a reasonable one. And I think I would say a couple of things about it. The first is that the CBO, and I don't want to get into a digression about the CBO right now, but I just want to say that the CBO's uh, assessment of the spending uh, result of this bill is driven by the CBO's view of the coverage result of this bill. That is to say that if the CBO is wrong that the mechanisms of this bill will lead to so many fewer people having coverage, mm-hmm. then the spending would also the spending cuts would be less. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, so but what you, I'm saying is there are huge tax cuts. I, I will I will get to that. So right. so there there are artifacts of the way the CBO is scoring the bill such that the CBO is scoring it as 22 million people fewer having coverage. And the reason why the bill is scored as having the spending cuts that it does is because the CBO is scoring it. it the causality is the coverage. So right. if fewer people are having coverage, then the government is spending less money to, to support the people who are having coverage. But so I just want to interject one thing, just because I, that is true, but also what the subsidies are tied to in the bill has gone down in its value. Well, yeah, I'm going to get to that yeah, in a minute. Okay. So, so, the, but there's a the first component is that to the degree the bill on paper with the CBO score looks like it's a massive spending cut and a massive tax cut, the massive spending cut part is an artifact to some degree of the way the CBO views the coverage numbers. If you look at CMS, which also scored the bill, not didn't get as much publicity, but the CMS actuary did a score of the House bill, of the House, not, bill, the, not Senate the Senate bill, bill but yeah. you know they're similar enough that you and the CM uh, the the CMS score said that the coverage decrement would be 11 million and therefore the spending cut would be a lot less as a result. All the, the I just want to bracket that to say that part of what you're describing in terms of tax cuts for spending cuts 
is an artifact of what you think the coverage is going to look like under this bill. So that's one piece of it that I think you just have to put to the side because it all depends on what your view of the, whether the CBO is this, right on the coverage. Can I echo this back to you just because I want to yeah. make sure this is clear because I, I understand what you're saying, but I, I just want to make sure I understand it. Yeah. So if you take – if you believe the CBO is wrong and, and basically what you're saying is the CBO believes the individual mandate is very powerful in pushing people to get coverage. Correct. If you don't believe that and right. so you believe this bill – will lead to, let's say, 10 million people losing coverage, not 22 million people. Right. The amount this bill spends goes up quite a bit. Correct. And your view of how much of a spending cut it is should it changes. That, that's the argument. Correct. Cool. So, so that's piece number one. Piece number two is what you were saying about the deductibles. So, uh, and, and, the, and what I would say about that is you're making an observation about a bill that is at the midpoint of its development, in the, in the mid, at the midpoint of its life cycle. And what do I mean by that? So remember the House bill had this flat tax credit. This was the Paul Ryan plan. This is the AEI plan. So, you know, the, 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 the House bill also represented a kind of a pull. The in terrible the thing to say about AEI. Well, uh, you know. <laughs> they I, didn't I, support the bill, though, I, ultimately. Well, I, yeah, I was a co-author of this sort of 10-author AEI plan, which was meant to be a consensus. Uh, and that bill basically was premised on full repeal of Obamacare and then a replacement with a flat tax credit. I – successfully lobbied for, well, that's one option, but the other option should be a means-tested tax credit, which has been my big thing. But the, the, but the Can we eight, just define those terms real quick? Absolutely. So a flat tax credit, what, what I mean by a flat tax credit is that the tax credit's value is the same regardless of your income, roughly speaking. So in the, in the House bill, if you were 40 years old, you got a $3,000 tax credit, whether you're making $10,000 a year or whether you're making $100,000 a year. And so people like me said, that is not the right structure because you're oversubsidizing people who don't need the help and undersubsidizing people who do. And so I spent a lot of time, as you know, because I know you read my stuff, advocating for using this age-adjusted means-tested schedule to be to do more to actually means real- testing is means testing is to to adjust the value of the tax credit by income. And age-adjusted, which means to adjust the value of the tax credit by the person's age because we want to get younger and healthier people to sign up. And so younger people need a little more financial assistance under this structure to be able to do that. So the idea was to help those two populations uh, get more involved in, 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 in afford insurance using this this table that it was kind of buried in the House bill but was not really you know part of the long-term reform in the House bill uh, called Section 202 of the House bill. So I spent a lot of time – you know, uh, in my blogs and everything else, trying to convince uh, people that that was the way to go. And I got a lot of resistance uh, for two reasons. One, um, there were people who said that smelled like Obamacare. Well, Obamacare has means-tested tax credit. Why would we want to do something that's similar to Obamacare? I'm like, you know, it doesn't – it's whether something is good policy or bad policy should be the metric, not whether something smells or sounds or looks like Obamacare. At the end of the day, we got to reform the healthcare system in the way that's best for people. Um, so that was one kind of area of, of 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 tension, shall we say, and the other was the fiscal side. So uh, there were a lot of people who were worried that uh, if you do this, if you have a more means tested tax credit in which poor people will be able to afford coverage, then more people will be covered, and that means the spending cuts will be less, and that will blow up the tax cuts and the fiscal architecture of the bill. So there was a lot of worry about that, and in a kind of weird way, because the CBO is so convinced that the individual mandate is so powerful, the Senate shoving all this money to lower income people and having this means-tested tax credit, which was a huge victory for people like me and advocates like me who were saying we have to have a means-tested tax credit, 
the, the CBO scoring it as roughly looking the same as a House bill meant, means that there's enough fiscal room now to add in the piece about the deductible. So you were asked – so we solved the problem in the Senate bill of low-income people being able to afford their premiums, which was a big problem in the House bill. The second piece of that, of the puzzle, is what you described in your question, which is, well, how do you help someone making $12,000 a year a four to $5,000 deductible? And that's where either health savings accounts or cost-sharing reduction subsidies come into play. And the Hill reported yesterday that um, this is now on the table to expand uh, this, the, the state innovation grants using that sort of mechanism, something like that, to, to have – a pretty substantial amount of money now to help people afford their deductibles. But they couldn't do that until they knew what the CBO would say about means testing versus a flat tax credit. Does that make sense? They had to do that step I, first. I don't agree with Kant, but but I but I take your point here, right? So let me let me say a couple things here. One is that I agree that you can imagine a better version of this bill. Mm. I do not think that the place this bill began in when you just read it, I mean, I had read the bill initially, and I was quite shocked by what was being proposed in terms of what you're trying to get poor people to buy, right? It was not unclear. They had moved down. So for people who are not as deep in the weeds of Obamacare as, as Ovik and I, the way the bill works is its subsidies are tied to a particular kind of insurance plan called a silver plan. It covers about 70% of your expected healthcare costs. What the bill here in the Senate does is it brings that plan down to 58%. Roughly a bronze plan. Roughly what's called a bronze plan, um, which you'd be looking there about a $6,000 deductible. And it be it phases out separately these cost-sharing reductions that help people um, who are beneath 250% of the poverty line uh, afford deductibles and co-pays and just the various out-of-pocket costs you might have. So when you did those two things, you I mean, it was very clear that you were going to end up pushing people into insurance they couldn't afford. And I am interested to see if another version of this bill comes out, as it looks like there will be, that is better on this score. But I guess this is an almost quasi-philosophical question for you. What is okay here? At what point have you given somebody, as somebody when you're dealing with somebody who makes $10,000 or $15,000 a year, how much should they be paying as a percentage of their income for their insurance? Because you can move the dial a little bit, but at some point a judgment has to be made of we're asking too much from people. We're giving them something not affordable versus we're giving them something affordable. One of the central characteristics of Medicaid is that it asks almost nothing in terms of cost sharing from people because of people who it helps are very poor. Um, one of the things people hate about Obamacare, even people much richer than the folks we're talking about, richer people with more means than the folks we're talking about, is the deductibles are very high, is that the co-pays are very high. And my concern is that in some ways, you're going to discredit the idea of private insurance by making it synonymous um, in these programs with incredibly tough deductibles, cost sharing, sparse benefits, etc. Um, and I would think for someone like you, that would be more worrying because I think if you do that, if you make people so dissatisfied, eventually Bernie Sanders is going to get elected, do a Medicaid or Medicare buy-in for all, and that's going to be that's going to be the game. With all those ifs applied, you're right, but I I don't agree. But every that one that of them se- is that logical, se- that logical sequence is, is but how But tell it me plays which out. part you don't buy. Yeah. So as I said, I think the, the 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 heaviest lift from a policy and legislative standpoint was to convince the Senate to move to this means tested, income tested tax credit where you're providing more assistance to the poor and the vulnerable. That was a huge philosophical adjustment for the Republican Party. And I think from your point of view, it may not be as obvious because you're like, well, of course we should help poor people buy health insurance. That's obviously taken for granted on the left. On the right, it is not, right? On the right, there is a huge debate between the people who see that as welfare 
and the people like me who say we should ha- achieve universal coverage. So it may not seem that way from the outside, particularly from a left-to-center point of view. But the movement from the House bill in which the tax credit was flat, which is something really almost nobody in the House liked except Paul Ryan, but Paul Ryan's a speaker, so he got to, 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 to have his way on that. Uh, to move from that to a means-tested, income-adjusted, flexible tax credit where your percentage of your income is capped in terms of the premium was – I mean there was an enormous amount of kind of intellectual conservative infighting to achieve that It's goal. funny because when you say it like that, I understand better why you were so excited when the bill came out. Right. But by, it, it, but by the same token, one of the things that – one of the things that sometimes I think separates away people on the left and people on the right look at bills is I actually think philosophy on these things is more important to the right. Abstract questions of how Absolutely. big the government is are more important to the right. Yeah. I am actually basically indifferent between private and public insurance. Mm-hmm. What I care about is how good the insurance is for people and whether they can afford to use it. Right. My belief is that doing that in a private system is going to be much, much, much more expensive, which is why I tilt towards pretty heavy public involvement because I think it's more affordable. But if people want to pay the cost, it's actually fine with me. Um, whereas this bill comes out and I, I get what you're saying. It is a big shift. I actually don't want to underplay that. It's probably something that people on the left miss. I, I think it wasn't noticed by the left at the time from, you know, but people be, on the right the noticed it, is, but people on the left didn't notice the, it. We, it's funny. I because, and I know why you're saying that. I but it wasn't that. noticed because it was done badly. Because of the deductibles piece. Yeah, yeah. it wasn't noticed because the end that – People on the left are trying to achieve when they when right. people on the left like it's very important to help poor people right. afford health insurance. Right. That afford health insurance right. part is really right. important. Just saying, like this bill got it. It's important to help poor people. Yes, but it did not get to the back half of that sentence. And if you don't, then you're not really helping them that much. I mean, this is a place where I agree with what the Congressional Budget Office said. They said, if you look at this bill as constructed, the health insurance is asking poor people to buy that it's helping them buy is so high in deductibles that they're not going to buy it anyway because it's not worth it to them. So So, you look at that and you're like, fuck it. Like That's actually not achieving your goal at all. So as you know, in the op-ed I wrote for the New York Times uh, that I have most recently, what did I say? I said the number one thing to fix about this bill is making the deductibles affordable for people. At my uh, the the blog for our think tank, freeop.org, that was the number one thing I said. The number one thing to fix about this bill is the deductibles. And the reason I was able to have traction with that case is because there was enormous pushback from not just the right philosophically, but there was a lot of fear out there that just the means testing was going to blow up the fiscal a piece of this bill, the fiscal architecture of this bill. So uh, there was a there was a moment when I was on uh, Hugh Hewitt's radio show a couple months ago when the House bill came out, and he had Paul Ryan on just after me, and I'd said to Hugh, you know, you really should ask Paul Ryan about this this huge Medicaid cliff where someone gets off Medicaid goes on to the tax his tax credit, and they're going to have a nine thousand dollar insurance bill. That just that's just for the premium. Forget about the deductible. And I'm like, that is that's not going to work. That's going to you're telling people you're, the Republican message if this bill passes is stay poor because you're better off being poor than actually trying to work and lift yourself out from poverty. What kind of a message is that? And he uh, and and he who who did one better. He didn't just ask the question. He played the tape of me asking the question and had Paul Ryan respond. And Paul Ryan's response was. Well, Ovik is, you know, he just wants more spending. He's a big government guy. I'm more of a conservative. You know, that was part of his message. And and so that was a lot of the pushback here. So it was very important to show that the means-tested, income-adjusted tax credit was workable fiscally before moving on to the piece about the deductibles. But once that once that was addressed, 
now it's it's possible to do this and and I always knew that was going to happen because I I probably have more understanding of the way the CBO model works than the <laughs> than the typical uh person in this in, in in Congress or whatever but but to me that was um that sort of that had to play out. I was confident that we could make the case on deductibles once that all played out. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., It's very anthropologically interesting to hear you explain the debate on this bill. It just it, it plays out in a way that is somewhat unfamiliar to me, even though I've covered it. I've talked sure. to the same people I think you're talking to. It's just I just always find it weird. But this to me is where there's a real problem given the Republican Party's internal incoherence on health care. So we did this piece a couple of weeks ago where we went to days before the Senate bill came out, and we asked eight Republican senators to explain just what they were trying to achieve. And we just got word salad. I mean, it was it was complete embarrassment, I think, for everybody who for almost everybody who was who was quoted in the piece. And it wasn't a hard it wasn't a gotcha question. It's like, what do you want this bill to do? What is it going to make better? And the problem in on the right to me is that so if you ask that question, people on the left and you say, like, what was Obamacare meant to do or what do you want to do in healthcare? They'll say, we want to make health insurance affordable for everybody, right? And if it's sometimes framed as we want health insurance to be a right in this country. Uh, and there are disagreements, but there's an overall goal that is pretty consistent. But as you just said with Ryan, the, the thing that seems really difficult to me in the Republican Party right now when you're when you're crafting health care policy is that there is a part of the party for whom – what you call the fiscal architecture comes first. Are you spending too much? Is this an entitlement? And then there's a part of the party, which is not that big, but is represented in part by you, that wants to make a conservative-oriented universal healthcare system. And that system is going to be expensive. It just is. Um, doing it well is going to be expensive. And I, I, we can talk through how expensive, but more than what they are willing have been willing to pay in any of the bills so far. And one thing that is happening here is that there has been a decision made in these bills so far that they have to repeal all of Obamacare's taxes. They have to do $650 billion roughly of tax cuts. And how you measure what's a tax cut changes a bit, but it's 500 to $700 billion depending on how you look at it. 
and that just gives you a lot less to play with in terms of building a, a good system. And so my, my concern in how this will work is that the compromise between the people who are concerned about cutting taxes and size of government and the people who want to create a healthcare system is just going to lead to a bad system. Right, a system that takes what people don't like about Obamacare right now and makes it worse, and doesn't actually achieve anybody's goals. So uh, I'm obviously a little more optimistic about about what this what this bill will result in. I, I do. Um, I, I will disagree with you on one thing in particular, which is that my whole thing about the conservative case for universal coverage is that you can do so in a way that that actually solves the entitlement problem. What is the what? what there's a lot of problems with our healthcare system, but one of the biggest. Is that we oversubsidize health insurance for upper income people and undersubsidize it for lower income people, and so to the degree that we do you want to talk just do you want to just lay out some of the I, this is an important point, so I just want to make sure we lay it out. What are some of the subsidies for high income people? So the two biggest are the fact that Medicare is a universal entitlement. So if you're Warren Buffett, you and I, Ezra, pay taxes so that Warren Buffett can have government subsidized health insurance. That's one element of it. And the other element, the b- other big element of it is the uh, exclusion from taxation of employer-based coverage, which is a massively regressive tax because if you're in a high tax bracket, if you're in the 33% or 39% federal income tax bracket, the fact that that health value of that health insurance is exempted from income taxes is of more value to you than if you're lower income. And of course, the probably the value of the insurance in general is better because you're a lawyer or a banker or whatever. You're making a lot more money and the value of your insurance is probably better because – like your company can afford to give you uh, more health insurance. So so those are the two biggest pots. There are others, but those are the two biggest. Um, and does this bill address those pots? No. But, but, but that's an important point. Which, which is an important <laughs> point. But, uh, but I, I would say that I do not – as a philosophical matter, I don't believe that universal coverage needs to spend more money. In fact, as we discussed the last time I was on your show, Ezra – we spend more government spending per capita in America on healthcare prior to Obamacare was higher than it was in the UK or Canada or Switzerland or Singapore, despite the fact that we have had 50 million. Uninsured. But this to me, this is a very good argument. I agree with it. Um, you definitely could reroute subsidies in the system. I'm, I have a different view than you do on Medicare, but sure. from the employer based tax subsidy, 100 percent. I'm completely there with you. This bill pushes the Cadillac tax, which addresses that in a small way, out further into the future. So while I I certainly can imagine the comprehensive soup-to-nuts reform plan that takes all this into account and creates a system like the one you're talking about uh, for less overall spending than we see in America right now, the political will to do something like that seems to me to be zero. And so we're talking about a world where you don't have access to that money. Or at least I don't see any evidence that you have access to that money. And I mean, this bill is not being built with access to that money. One way to think about it, to, to better understand how I think about it, I, I suppose, is to think of the Affordable Care Act and the Senate bill, the Better Care Reconciliation Act, as two partisan pieces of a bipartisan whole. And if you add them up fiscally, what does it amount to? So Obamacare, over a 10-year period, roughly speaking, back of the envelope, spends $2 trillion over 10 years expanding coverage to the uninsured, according to the CBO. That $2 trillion is funded by $1.2 trillion in tax hikes and $850 billion in Medicare cuts or reductions in Medicare spending. So what the, uh, what the Republican bill does is it doesn't do anything to the Medicare cuts. So in a sense, if you think about it, again, as a 
total whole, what what the Republican bill does is it it cuts most of the taxes. It keeps the Cadillac tax, but it cuts it repeals the rest of the taxes. It doesn't touch the Medicare piece at all, plus or minus. And it redoes the uh, the coverage expansion. It spends less money on coverage than uh, than Obamacare does. But if you put all that together and you think about it that way, the gap between the Republican and Democratic plans in terms of how much is being spent on coverage expansion is not as wide as one might imagine. Uh, and it's particularly less wide if you don't think that 15 million people are going to drop out of the market because there's no longer an individual mandate. Yes, but, but here's where I think – this gets trickier. I don't think that's quite the right comparison. Obamacare is already, in my view, an underfunded bill. Um, what people dislike about it is the deductibles are too high, the premiums are too high. I mean, you hear this everywhere. And and this is, by the way, not something that only people on the left say. Donald Trump says the deductibles are too high. Mitch McConnell says the deductibles are too high. Mike Enzi talks about the deductibles being too high. I mean, it is a consistent Republican argument that in Obamacare, people are on all this bad insurance that they can't afford to use. Fair enough. You don't like the amount of Medicaid in Obamacare, but the reason – one reason there's so much Medicaid in Obamacare is covering poor people. If you're, It if was you, cheaper. It's cheaper. It was cheaper according so, to CBO. I'm, so not, I th- I'm not sure I buy that it was, it's cheaper in reality, but the CBO scored it as cheaper. So I totally buy that it's cheaper, but, but for equivalent insurance. It is definitely cheaper because Medicaid pays lower prices if you were going to give people insurance with as little cost sharing as Medicaid has. That would be extremely expensive private insurance. It's just very – I mean – most employers don't offer insurance. It has that little cost sharing. So I think the question is, what is the funding gap mm-hmm. between the system we have, whether it's the Affordable Care Act or the Better Care Reconciliation Act, and the kind of system you are talking about? Let me ask you this, And I Ezra. think that funding gap is very, very wide. And while it's true, you could begin to make it up if you did things like unwind the employer tax exclusion – Nobody's doing that. Yeah. So let me ask you this. If the bill – if a, a, a new version of this bill solved that problem in, in terms of the cost sharing where there was robust uh, cover uh, subsidies for the, the deductibles such that you would be satisfied. I'm not saying that's going to happen. In fact, I, I fully expect that will not happen. The, the Ezra Klein will be satisfied with the, the amount of uh, spending on deductibles. But if it were, would this be a good bill in your mind? Depends what you mean by the deductible spending. It, so the things that I would be looking at are what is the insurance we're talking about? What does it cover and for whom? So I don't want to say it's just deductibles. If you begin to work the bill in a way that all the states begin to waver out of the regulations and they use that as a backdoor way to make pre-existing conditions um, something people can't get covered again, right? Because you can begin to stop offering plans that cover X or Y, then it's a bad bill. Okay. But it is completely the case that you can imagine a bill – and I used to support a bill like this. So the Wyden-Bennett bill, the Healthy Americans Act, which I liked and I like better than the Affordable Care Act, you and I, I want to bracket because I want to have a discussion about Medicaid, which I have a much higher opinion of than you do. But the original version of the Healthy Americans Act, if I'm recalling this right, I believe it dissolved both the employer-based market and over time Medicaid into these new – basically what were exchanges. Uh and I think it was a good bill, um, and I think that it it had a very clear and coherent theory of how the healthcare system moves forward. It was a big bipartisan bill, so yes, there are very much versions of that I can imagine supporting. What I've become very pessimistic on is that there is a version of that that will ever get Republican support. Yeah, so but I yes. mean, well, w- Wyden Bennett, of course. I mean, uh, Mike Lee is in the Senate because uh, because Bennett uh, supported Wyden Bennett, and, and that was how Mike Lee campaigned against him in terms right. of his primary challenge. Um, uh, so the reason I asked you that question, Ezra, is because 
I, I totally agree that the deductible piece, particularly for the low-income population – for high-income population, I don't think it's a problem. But for the low-income population, I think it is a problem. And I do have confidence that if this bill actually gets to the finish line, this problem will be addressed. Again, will it be addressed to your satisfaction? Probably not. Will it be addressed to my satisfaction? I'm much more optimistic that oh, wait, it can be. But that, I, I think we need to stop there because I don't want to totally go over that quickly. Like, what is okay? Like, what is an right. okay deductible for somebody making $15,000 a year? I, I would say that, well, I, I would put it a different way. There are different ways to reduce the amount of out-of-pocket spending you have. One is simply to just not have a deductible, right? Another would be to have health savings accounts, which defray the deductibles, but also give you an incentive uh, if you stay healthy, to actually accumulate a nest egg, have compound interest, build savings, which you can then share with your relatives or pass down to your kids, and thereby create a lot more positive incentives that you can spend. So the thing about a low deductible is it's use it or lose it, right? So if you have a cost-sharing subsidy, it's just a low deductible. The plan costs more money, but if you stay healthy in that year, all that extra expenditure for the insurance plan basically goes to waste. Whereas with a health savings account, uh, if you stay healthy, that money – it's like a rollover plan with your cell phone. That money actually, like minutes in a cell phone and, rollover plan, it accumulates and accumulates and accumulates. And then you're saying to do pre-funded health savings yeah, accounts so, for people? So, so like you exactly. start with $3,000 so in there it, or something? You subsidize health savings accounts for people. So the actual structure for that is different because instead of it being like, well, you're just going to have formally – fewer out-of-pocket expenses. I mean, there will still be a deductible in the plan, but you'll have this health savings account that you can be used to fund to pay for those out-of-pocket expenses, right? So there's a lot of wonky details about how you would compare simply just having a low deductible versus having a high deductible, but having a health savings account that pays off your out-of-pocket expenditures over time. And there's a lot of actuarial math around that. So that's what I advocate. I would – in Transcending Obamacare, my big white paper from both 2014 and the first edition and the, and the edition that we published when we launched uh, the think tank in September at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, the idea is instead of having just lower deductibles, give people health savings accounts, give poor people control sure, so, over the health dollars. I want to pull out of the weeds here for okay. a minute because the question I'm asking you is like you're somebody with $15,000. Right. What is it OK to ask you to pay? At what point right. is this not affordable right. for you? And I think you it, can structure how you make it affordable a lot right. of ways, but yeah, I, I think it depends on how you subsidize and structure the health savings accounts and what has first dollar coverage, right? So, for example, if you have first dollar coverage in the insurance plan for a lot of things, such as your primary care visits, then your deductible isn't being used to pay that, right? So, a lot of it, it's not just the math number of what the deductible is; it's what's the what you have to use the deductible for, and then how much assistance you need. So, if you're covering a lot of everyday can you go to the doctor and can you get mammograms? Can you do all those everyday things? And you have first dollar coverage for that. Then what you ha- what you need the deductible to cover is smaller, right? Whereas if there's no first dollar coverage for everything, then you've got to have a lot more support in terms of re- reducing out-of-pocket expenditures. So it's, it's, it's hard to give a just a dollar figure because it really depends on the structure of the insurance plan and what you're doing to offset what out-of-pocket costs there are. Should somebody making $15,000 a year be paying if they get sick, should it be plausible that they're paying $3,000 for their care? I don't think it's desirable. Let's put it that way. I think it's desirable to minimize. Let's put it this way. I don't know what the exact number is. I don't think it's $1. I don't think it's $0. Do I think it's $3,000? No. Uh, So is it maybe a couple hundred dollars? Possibly. 
Um, I'm, that, that I think is a useful answer because we're just very far from that in this plan. But that's what I think I think this bill is going to do more to address. I think there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a philosophical view on the left that the poor should have no out-of-pocket expenditures at all. It should be free to the end user, which is kind of like the British National Health Service model. That is not the view of people like myself. The view of people like myself is that there should be some nominal out-of-pocket spending, but should it be unaffordable? No. But so here, here's my concern about this bill. It's why I was surprised when you tweeted initially what a good bill it was. Right. And, and I, I understand from your thinking a little bit more why it was like a big victory for you and a sort of internal conservative war. But I worry about a bill that is ultimately not a good bill for the neediest people being justified by reference to a sort of imaginary bill that would be. Well, remember, but, it's, but it, it, that's why it was called a discussion draft, right? It was not the final draft yeah, of the bill. But to be fair, when they brought it out, they were saying they wanted to vote in a week. <laughs> well, yes, that they did say that, but um, I, I don't. I think most people didn't believe that that was going to be the outcome. Right, we scheduled this podcast not believing that would be the outcome. <laughs> right. But one reason people were yeah. concerned I mean, is I understand your your basic question is why did you tweet that when these things were no, not in the I'm, bill? I, I'm not. I don't need to forensics your tweet. What I'm what I'm actually saying is I am worried that at the end result, like yes, there is a version. We are having this conversation that is right. sort of flipping between the Better Care Reconciliation Act. The hypothetical next iteration of the Better Care Reconciliation Act and what you actually want. Right. right? And, and we all in politics have to make compromise. Like the yeah. Affordable Care Act is not what I wanted. Totally. Right. But I thought it was better than the status quo. What I'm trying to understand here with you a bit is what is your cutoff point for better yeah. than the status quo? Yeah. Because there are things that are going to represent right. a like forward motion right. on important battles on the right, right. to you and to others. Right. But are going to be worse for a lot of needy people in practice. That's what I think of the at least the first version of the BCRA. I think there are a lot of good things in the bill. The reason I support the bill so much is again because that if you don't get that basic structure right of how you how you make premiums affordable for people, then a lot of other things can't be achieved. So getting that right was a huge victory. And then I, I the way I looked at it was like so you're you're saying well gosh if these deductibles aren't affordable that's just terrible that's going to be a step backwards and I think why we're having this kind of disconnect perhaps is because I see that as a very easy piece to fix. It's very easy to just flip a switch and say we're going to spend X billion dollars uh, to 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 address that problem. Whereas getting the structure and architecture of the bill to be different so that it could be it could be open to that possibility. That was the hard part. Sure, but I the place where I think you're right is that if Democrats were creating this bill, and Democrats do believe people's deductibles should be very low, very easy to fix. It is yeah. a mechanical change to the bill, right? You yeah. like literally like yeah. cross out a sentence and you like put a new sentence in, in its place. But when you're looking at a bill that is a compromise between some people, relatively few as far as I can tell, who are committed to there being a conservative but usable universal-ish healthcare system and people who wish they would just could just repeal Obamacare outright, put nothing in its place, right. and people who really just care about the tax cuts. And Paul Ryan, I mean, you were mentioning earlier this sort of strange radio uh, event where you got replayed in a, in a segment afterward. But Paul Ryan, who said, oh, Ovik is just a big government guy, he's not you or me, right? He's not... Phil yeah. Klein and you have a lot of debates. Phil's another writer who cares about health care, but is on the conservative side. He's a speaker of the House, right? A bill has to go through him. And he is philosophically opposed, as far as I can tell, to uh, 
I think, to what I, we're think if this, about. I think if this if the if the bill I'm describing is the bill in the Senate and it passes the Senate, the House will pass it too. Because the fact is that approach is more popular in the House than what Paul Ryan uh, Paul Ryan's plan was in my my assessment. Um, that's not something you know you 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 see necessarily in the press commentary. But that's my that's my assessment based on my own kind of information. So, you know, I, I, so I think this you're right that I would say a couple of things. One, the the if you look at the process by which the ACA was designed relative to this process was a much better process. Right. Not only was there a lot more thought and care and policy wonkery in the beginning at the outset as to what the design of the bill would be. But there were a lot of public hearings. There were even hearings in which Paul Ryan could go to the Blair House and give a long speech about how terrible the bill was. President Obama invited him to do that. I think that's to to, uh, the president and Democrats' great credit that they did that. Um, And Republicans haven't done something similar here. And the policy development process has also been uh, a little bit more helter-skelter because there were all these philosophical tensions that had to be resolved in a way that weren't as true in the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party has tensions between its single-payer crowd and its Obamacare crowd. But I think the broad consensus at the outset in 2008 was single-payer guys, it's never going to happen. We got to do this is the only way forward. And so even the Democrats who aesthetically preferred or economically preferred single-payer kind of took a step back. That wasn't the case here. Republicans really had to hash that out. I feel that is now not 100% hashed out, but mostly hashed out to a point where now the policy process can actually uh, take uh, a higher priority and get this bill to a place where it really would work for people. And I will tell you that in my view, the senators in general – I mean, some of them have kind of quirky priorities as, as senators are want to do. But I think in general, when what I hear and read and see and with my own eyes is that there are a lot of people who are genuinely concerned about making the system work, about lowering premiums, making those premiums affordable and for serving their poorest constituents. And are they there yet? Is this bill exactly where it should be to achieve that goal? I would say it's not there yet. But I have I'm very optimistic that we can get to a place where this bill really does represent progress. So it's funny what you say about this sort of initial space of Obamacare, right, between the single payer and the and the let's say the incrementalist folks. Right. Because what I would say has happened since is that the moderates on this issue in the Democratic Party have been completely discredited. Yeah. I, I was talking with somebody the other day who is one of the designers of the Affordable Care Act and, and is very frustrated because he believes the basic structure makes sense, is good. But was underfunded, which they had. He feels they had to do to get it through Congress, um, and now there's no one left to defend it because Republicans are, you know, Republicans never liked anything about the bill, not even the parts that Democrats thought they might like, and Democrats have looked and liberals have looked and said all these things you promised us we would get for having a sort of compromised policy bill. What we what what Democrats saw as compromising down away from their ideal policy. We didn't get it. We didn't get more support. We didn't get Republican cover. We didn't get sustainability. We're now watching this repeal process. And something I could very much imagine happening here, too, is that if you have a bill like this pass and it's underfunded, that your side of the bait is corroded by that, too. One of my views right now is that we are rushing towards a space, which I'm not upset about necessarily, although I'm upset about the people get hurt in the meantime, where I think a very plausible way this all plays out is Republicans do manage to pass something that is not very good, that takes what people were upset about in Obamacare and makes it worse, higher deductibles, more uninsurance, um, you know, more cost sharing, and that next time Democrats have power, they use the reconciliation process to do some kind of national Medicare buy-in that's subsidized for poor people with high taxes on rich people. 
And that's yeah. it. <laughs> so I, I think that was a, a much bigger risk with the house, uh, the house bill and the flat tax credit because the disruption there, uh, and the unraveling of the market there would have been very, very bad. And that's one of the reasons I was so vocal in my criticisms of the house bill because I thought that would be a, a very dangerous outcome. The Senate bill, on the other hand, so let's say the Senate bill passes and there's some uh, assistance for cost sharing, but not from an Ezra Klein point of view enough or from the, the average person's point of view enough to actually afford those deductibles. That's an easy problem to fix. Democrats and Republicans could get together and pass a, another bill in which they, they say, oh, gosh, we didn't do enough to fund deductibles. We'll get together and we'll pass a bill to do that. Democrats and Republicans get together to pass bills like that all the time. That's, again, a very simple Has fix. Has that happened? In, I mean, well, but, have but they been doing that, that recently? I've that, not been that, noticing that's, it. That's a, that's, I think that's an easier area for uh, for Republicans and Democrats to come together because it's a relatively simple thing. Just spend money. Senators and, are very, and members of Congress are very good at being able to do that. They're used to doing that. What's very hard is systemic change. Right. So systemically changing the Medicare program so it's fiscally sustainable, changing the employer tax solution, which so many people uh, value and making that more uh, uh, affordable for everybody. That's very hard. But spending another 50 billion dollars over 10 years on deductibles, that's easy. So so if that's the only problem with this bill at the end of the day. I don't see that as as kind of fatalistic and, and and leading to single payer. I do think if you get the regulatory architecture wrong, then you have the kinds of problems you're talking about. So I'm going to I'm going to say that we're going to agree to disagree here. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. This podcast is supported by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research on behavioral science and dives into questions like, can we learn to make smarter decisions? And what is the power of negative thinking? The show is hosted by Katie Milkman. She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, in each episode, Katie talks to authors, athletes, Nobel laureates, and more about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones. Choiceology is out now. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast or find it wherever you listen. I want to move on to Medicaid. Okay. Uh, a big part of what this bill does is from 21 to 24, 2021 to 2024, it phases out Obamacare's Medicaid expansion. Then beginning in 2025, it ratchets down spending growth so that it cuts Medicaid very dramatically. Um, this is something that I'm very upset about, that a lot of people who think Medicaid is an important program are upset about. It's something you're very positive towards. Uh, 
because you feel that Medicaid is itself a bad program, that, that it is better to sort of uproot it as much as possible. So I want to go through this debate because I think it's an important one. Go through your view of Medicaid. So uh, I wrote a book called How Medicaid Fails the Poor, which is 48 pages. Anybody who's really interested in kind of a, a real explore, a lengthy exploration of my views, I encourage you to read it. You can read it in an hour. But the basic idea – and I opened that book with a story that I actually learned from you, Ezra. You wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post. I think it was in 2010 where you talked about the story of Diamante Driver, a 12-year-old boy who had a lot of trouble getting a dentist appointment. And because he, his mom couldn't get him a dentist appointment after trying really hard, he, the toothache he had – he, it turned out to be an infected tooth and the infection spread to his brain. And so he had to have neurosurgery to get this abscess from his brain taken out. And after all this, he basically had seizures and he died. And you made the point in in talking about that story that, well, this is why we need to have Obamacare and Republicans need to have an answer for, for people like Diamante Driver. And the point I make in the book is Diamante Driver had insurance. He was on Medicaid. He was not uninsured. And, and Ezra is totally right to point out that we need to serve the Diamante drivers of this world and we're not doing so through the Medicaid program. And so in the book, I walk through why, why that has happened. Why is it that people like Diamante driver have a tough time getting access to the care even though they have insurance on paper? And the reason is, is that when the Medicaid program was designed in 1965, it was it was jointly funded by the federal government and the states, as many of your listeners will know. But the federal government put a lot of conditions on how states could manage their Medicaid programs. From the state's point of view, they're the junior partner. They have a really limited amount of flexibility in how they can run their Medicaid programs. And the end result of that has been that as Medicaid – you know, as medical inflation increases and, and the costs go up and more, more than, you know, grows and grows and grows as a piece of the state budget, the federal government can issue treasury bonds, right? The treasury, uh, the federal government can finance its debt. State governments cannot, not, not in the same way. And so, and because they can't find, they can't just go into debt massively. And because they can't really re-architecture the program because the law, the Medicaid law doesn't allow them to, really only the tool that they've had to manage their Medicaid costs is to pay hospitals and doctors less and less money. The end result of that has been there's now a huge disparity in what private insurers and even Medicare pays a primary care physician to see a, med a patient versus what Medicaid pays. And so you have this card that says you have health insurance, but you can't actually see a doctor when you need one, not just primary care, but also specialists. And there's an enormous amount of literature on this. And so what you'll hear some people on the left say, well, the solution to that is easy, spend more money, right? Uh, but we're already kind of broke. And, and so the question is, can we solve the problem of access to care for this population in a way that's more economically efficient? I, so I do want to – so two things there because I think that is a good introduction to – these are problems I agree with. We, we, can, we can talk about questions about mortality later. But the point about spending more money and we're broke – we're broke is an argument people in politics use whenever somebody is suggesting something they don't like. Republicans do not believe we are so broke that we should not have very large tax cuts coming down the pike within the next 365 days, right? And, and, and House Republicans have said they don't even have to be fully paid for. We're not so broke that we can't increase spending on defense, right? That is mm -hmm. part of Donald Trump's budget. We just seem to be really broke when it's about paying for things poor people need. Right now. And, and, and there's a, agree, a degree to which I agree with you in the sense that I think – and you've heard me say this a lot over the years – that uh, it is really problematic, for example, that Republicans uh, support these massive subsidies in terms of health care for the wealthy and the upper earners and not for the poor. So, so my whole thing is I'm not saying we should 
you know, slash spending on poor people's health care, my argument is that the structure of Medicaid is such that it's broken and that I want to liberate people from that structure to be in a better structure where the federal government is providing them the assistance to buy and afford health coverage and get the care they need. So I really, really want – I would be so ecstatic if the debate in this country was between d- different sides of how do we get the poor the best health care possible. Um, and and I believe – like I believe emotionally that, that you are there. But the thing that's hard for me in this is when I look at things like the BCRA, right, which at least in the version that we all have to look at now – takes people out of Medicaid and gives them something they just cannot afford, right? Something that is very close and often will be just being uninsured. It doesn't seem that that is what Republicans are ever offering up. I can imagine ways to make Medicaid better, uh, but they cost money. I can imagine ways to give people private insurance that is good and that they can use even if they don't have themselves much money, but that costs money. And the consistent thing on the right is that it does not seem that there is a willingness and it almost there cannot be given other parts of the agenda to move money in move enough money to give folks who can't afford health insurance good health insurance so there's something about these kinds of arguments which are are leveraged to justify massive medicaid cuts that that really that really deeply offends me sure. because yes like so, yes the 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 story of diamante it's it's heart-wrenching. I'm going to tell you another story. My wife, Annie, um, Annie Lowry, when she was at the New York Times, uh, she reported on the Oregon Medicaid experiment, which you and I have both written about a lot. And she was at a focus group, or not quite a focus group, but a meeting of some of the people who got in health insurance through it. She met a woman. And the woman had um, cervical cancer. And what she had been considering doing before she won the lottery was having her partner get her pregnant so she would qualify for medicaid so she get her cervical cancer treated i mean this stuff is really really bad and that's why we both support universal coverage no i know i i know you do but what seems to me to be happening in the republican party right now is an argument about medicaid that i don't think is correct but even if you do think it's correct that is being used to make the problem worse right to say medicaid is not good enough insurance so here let me move that money to tax cuts for rich people and give you somewhat worse insurance like that's really bad so yeah. you know let me tell you where i stand so from my standpoint i believe in tax reform i think that low, a lower tax you know a lower tax regime is better for the economy but i don't think that's the biggest problem in our country fiscally as a as a fiscal conservative who wants the long-term fiscal sustainability of this country to work the problem you have to solve is the massive growth of spending overall, you know, not just healthcare, but it's primarily healthcare. But o- overall, if you look at all those CBO reports, there was one just the, you know, the other day about the, you know, the, the long term or the, the, the 10 year budget outlook. But the long term ones tell you the story. As the, as if things go as they are and we spend more and more money as a percentage of our GDP, we're either going to go massively into debt and have lots of problems there or we're going to raise taxes to a point where it really does hurt the economy. So I don't, I, in terms of what we do on the tax policy side, that's less important to me than getting the healthcare piece right. And how do you get the healthcare piece right? And this is what Transcending Obamacare, my big manifesto on health reform is all about. We should spend money to make sure that low-income people and sick people can afford health coverage and spend less money on upper-income people. So how does that translate back to the Medicaid conversation? How that translates to the Medicaid conversation is that moving people who are able-bodied but poor – out of the Medicaid system into the exchanges, so to speak, or what the Republican version of the individual market would be, 
is progress so long as we address these issues of the cost sharing and all that. The premium piece, I think, it has been addressed broadly, but the cost sharing piece has not. But if you do that, you're taking people out of system, which you know you stipulated there are problems with, and there's problems with access to care with. I think this is well known among people who follow this stuff. And you're putting them in a system where their access to care could be better. And not only will their access to care be better, think about it this way, Ezra. Right now, under the ACA, the way it works is if your income is at 138% of the federal poverty level in the District of Columbia or Oregon or California, you disenroll from Medicaid and enroll in the exchanges. And if the next month your income goes to 137.8% of the poverty level, you then have to go back onto Medicaid. And then maybe the next month you're on employer-based coverage because you happen to get a job that that month. Then the next month maybe you're trying to go back to – so your people are having to jump back and forth to all these different insurance plans and that means there's discontinuities of coverage. There's discontinuities of care because the primary care physician you're assigned to in the Medicaid program may be different from the one you're in on the exchange-based plan. And that leads to bad outcomes. And so to me, putting everyone in one system in which your income goes up and down, but you keep the same insurance plan, maybe the level, exact level of your financial assist- assistance is adjusted, but you're in the same insurance plan. You get to have the same doctor, the same network of providers and clinics and hospitals. That's a better system in terms of making sure those individuals get better health care than they do today. So I actually wouldn't argue that point, although there are different ways to create that better system. Right? Sure. You could have a public option. You could expand Medicaid for Medicaid. everybody in exactly. theory, and do, so, you know, which would not be my we, favorite. We, we, agree yeah. on, we, we agree on, on integration of care here. Sure. But whenever a political coalition gets power, all of a sudden, you know, you open Schrodinger's box and you like find out if the cat is dead or alive, right? There are all these plans beforehand and all these sort of ideal visions of what a system could be like. And there's transcending Obamacare and there's the AI plan and there's, you know, like Michael Cannon's like throw him out into the streets plan. And I mean, there's everything. It's all out there. Hallmark cards, um, as I tweeted this morning. <laughs> um, I, I will say for Mike, like I, I appreciate I appreciate having someone in the debate is just like, this is what this poll of the debate looks like. Just sure. Everybody having health insurance should not be our, not thing. Our, our thing. The church of non-universal, yeah. the church of anti-universal coverage, I think is what, um, what he created. Right? But now we like have to see if the cat is alive or dead. And and what I'm seeing in a lot of these plans is is the cat is dead. So what I am concerned about is, okay, you get some of the deductibles dealt with, but you are bringing plans down to a 58% actuarial value. Now, obviously, if you're if you're managing the cost sharing, that that is managed at least somewhat, depending on how groups and states use the essential benefit waivers. I'm not incredibly worried about that. Uh, mostly, I think states do not want to destroy their health it's insurance It's not in their markets. interest to, 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 to do a lot of things to pare down the benefit. But if you're going to make it cheaper, you are going to have to pare down the benefit, right? That Not necessarily. That is, that is one of the main – that is – one thing that I think is frustrating in this debate is a lot of folks who take the deregulatory point of view – refuse to admit the trade-offs of it. That the way these plans become cheaper by having fewer benefits is by having fewer benefits. So so, so yeah. I don't think it's a zero-sum game. So we all know, for example, this, this is always in the news, that if you have younger and healthier people in the pool of insurance, the overall premiums go down, mm-hmm. right? right? So there's a sweet spot, right? If, if you make the pl- – if you design the insurance plans such that they're very, very attractive for sick people but very, very unattractive for healthy people, then the only people who are going to sign up are sick people and that blows up the insurance market, right? We all understand that. If you make the market very, very attractive for healthy people and very unattractive or unaffordable for sick people, um, 
maybe the premiums are really low, but the sick people don't get insurance and we want to address the problem for them. There is a balance between those two poles and it's not a zero sum game. And so my, for example, the, the age bands and the ACA, the fact that you can only charge a young person a third of what you charge an old person, the end result of that has been premiums have doubled for young people and they haven't really gone down for old people, you know, in response. So old people didn't benefit and young people got hammered. That was not a zero sum result. That was a negative sum result. Do you see so, what I'm saying? Yes, but I, I want to, Bracket age bands. I disagree that old people didn't benefit, but I, w- I want to stand benefits for a second because we live in a country where a very large number of states, despite being given the option to expand Medicaid to their poorest people with the government paying at first 100 percent of the the federal government paying 100 percent of the cost and then paying – I think it was 90 percent was the long-term match, which is an incredible deal given the history of the Medicaid program, given really anything that happens in the federal government. Uh, they said no. And when that meant that people beneath 100% of the poverty line could not get health insurance, any subsidies at all, they said, fine, we're just going to sit here and these people can just be sick and they can just be uninsured. Yes, it would be true that if I believed that these states, all of them, it was really a priority for them to address the needs of their sickest and poorest people, then yes, this wouldn't be a problem. But I don't think we've seen that. Uh, And I, I... I believe that I believe that the absence of Medicaid expansion in states is morally indefensible. I know that you might have a, a different view, but it wasn't like what was happening during this period was they were coming with 1332 waivers asking, hey, could we instead have the money and use it a different way? We have some other idea that is a better way to do this. And I recognize that the hope is that maybe a better way comes out here. But the Republican Party is not made of Ovik Royce. That's for sure. And – this is going to be mediated by people who, in some cases, were dragged kicking and screaming to it. And so I have a lot of concern that folks who are in the places where there is the least sympathy for their plight will end up really hurt. I have to obviously completely disagree that it's morally indefensible not to expand Medicaid. If it was morally indefensible to not expand Medicaid in 2011 – it was also morally indefensible to not expand Medicaid in 2007, right? States had the option I, to expand Medicaid. Yes, it would have cost them more, but they had the freedom but yes, uh, let, to do let me, so. Let me so, lay out. I believe that the status quo of American healthcare in 2007, in 2011, in 2015, in 2017 right. is morally indefensible. So, like, I think this is a national shame. Like, I, I, it's something I, I, we should be embarrassed that, by. That I agree with you. Uh, on, but 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 specifically when it comes to the expansion of Medicaid as dis, uh, prescribed in the Affordable Care Act, I think it is eminently defensible not to do it, and there are a couple of reasons why. Uh, first, the, the, there's a sort of midterm uh, argument which you would hear a lot of the states make, and they genuinely believe this is a sincere argument on their part that okay, the match is ninety percent now, which is still a lot of money for a state. It's still – it's not like they have piles of money lying around that they can just, oh, we just had all this piles of money lying around. We're just going to spend it on on Medicaid. It's not like that's the case. But but I think if a lot of states believed that that match would remain 90 percent, then OK. Maybe, maybe that is a deal. Maybe that's a deal we should take. But states don't have that confidence. In Texas where I now live, you know, there was a lot of concern. If that match rate just goes to 88 percent from 90 percent, well, that doesn't seem like a large adjustment. But if you're the state, it's gone from – your, your portion has gone from 10% to 12%. That's a 20% increase. That is a lot of money for a state. Uh, and so there was just not a lot of confidence that future Congresses would hold up their end of the deal, so to speak. So that was problem number one. 
Problem number two, which is not so much what states cared about, but what I cared about, was that once these programs get up and running, they're very hard to reform. All the things we described about Diamante Driver, the problems that led to Diamante Driver having the problems that he has are structural problems with the Medicaid program. And structural problems are the hardest problems to, to reform because there's so much inertia, so many people, there's so much path dependence. It's just hard to do. Whereas my the whole thing was if you wait and don't expand Medicaid, but then have the option to buy individually purchased private health insurance with health savings accounts, that that would be a much superior option for those individuals, an option that we may be on the verge of enacting for them in the very near future. So two things on that. So one, I just want to note the irony. I heard the, the case on number one that maybe some future Congress would take away the match. And sure enough, Republicans got into power and are taking away the match. So there was a sort of odd we can't do this because later on we will sabotage this program. I just want to note that that, that is certainly how that sounds to me. But but the other thing, I, I want to be Democrats a little Democrats have talked about lowering Medicaid matches over the years too. The president, not, president not in, Obama, not, not in this, this particular case. context, but President Obama did propose in two of his White House budgets when he was president, reducing or blending the the FMAP, the federal matching assistance percentage. But Democrats, percentage I think Democrats viewed Obamacare as something they had made a commitment sure, to. And sure. listen, for now, if Republicans had wanted to put forward a bill saying let's fully federalize all Medicaid costs in perpetuity, I would have been totally fine with it. <laughs> just just to be clear, fair enough. I want to be a little bit careful with how much we define – actually, I want to be very careful with defining the Medicaid program around Diamante Driver. That case is a tragedy. There are a lot of tragic cases from all across the healthcare system, from sure. being uninsured, from private health insurance, from Medicare, from the veterans system. I mean, it's a big country. Sure. Medicaid has higher satisfaction rates among the people who are on it than private health insurance, um, 74% for Medicaid versus 68% for employer-based health insurance. Uh, 83% of people on Medicaid say they are happy with their access to doctors. It is the case that there are access problems in Medicaid compared to the employer-based system, particularly compared to good insurance for the employer-based system. But it's also the case that the people on it like it a lot. They like it better than the people on the Affordable Care Act's exchange insurance, like their exchange insurance. Uh, they like it better than people on employer plans, like their employer plans. Uh, it's working for people, or they think it is. And the reason, and, and I do think this is something that we all need to take seriously, like all health wonks, we like to look at these plans and we have these sort of clever cost sharing constructions and health savings accounts and deductibles and donut holes. And, you know, you can run the economic evidence of why they will work or why they won't work or whether they'll be a good idea. But a lot of people, what they want from healthcare, from health insurance is to not be afraid. And that is something that Medicaid, I mean, even in the studies that you would cite to say it doesn't do as much as you want, it clearly has that not be afraid quality. It clearly protects from financial catastrophe. It increases people's subjective sense of well-being, reduces their depression. I mean, the, the mechanism of this seems very clear. And it matters for people. And, you know, a lot of these states – the, the reason it was a little bit appalling to me was they were willing to leave people in a tremendous state of fear rather than say, you know what, if the federal government changes a match in the future, I'm going to pull out of this program, right? Well, or, that's a lot harder to do. I agree, it's, I agree it's a lot harder to do, but is it so much harder than letting people in your state who make 90% of the poverty line go without health insurance, right? I mean, I don't think it's harder. I think it's easier. And so I just, I worry about the mediation mechanism here. We're talking about moving people into plans that are designed to be, I don't know offhand what the actual value of a Medicaid plan is. Maybe you do. 
it's like it's it's basically I think ninety five to ninety eight percent. So we're like moving people into fifty eight percent actuarial value plans. Now we're going to subsidize that. And maybe we get it up to seventy six percent, right? For for poor people, but this can go wrong in a lot of ways, uh, in, in ways that just really fundamentally concern me. One thing that cons- if 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 there was someone who was more libertarian than me uh, sitting here with you, Ezra, uh, someone might say in response to your point about the ninety percent of federal poverty level, that person being uninsured. That a minimum wage job, 40 hours a week for 50 weeks a year, gives you an annual income that's about 128% of the federal poverty level. So in a kind of unintentional way, uh, because this is not obviously how the ACA was designed, but if you don't expand Medicaid and eligibility for the exchanges is 100% of the federal poverty level, if you work a full-time minimum wage job, you will be eligible for that kind of assistance. And so in a in a, a kind of, again, an unintended way, for people who believe in that sort of thing, I don't because I support universal coverage. But for people who want a work requirement, which many conservatives philosophically support, what you're describing as a catastrophic and terrible and immoral system is actually what conservatives support. They say, hey, uh, health insurance for poor people is welfare. And if you work a minimum wage job full time, you will be able to get coverage. Yeah. So this gets to something that is actually a it's a a bigger issue that I want to talk to you about, because I think it's important. It's important in all of these bills. It's important in Obamacare. It's important in Medicaid. And I think it's really missed in this debate. This is a debate that happens among, by and among people who are incredibly disciplined, right? All of, if you ended up in Congress, if you're writing bills in the Senate, if you're running a think tank in Austin, Texas, if you're, you know, in the White House, Actually, if you're in the West, you might not be all that disciplined. But <laughs> when I see we, the barbecue in Austin, I feel a lot and, less and, disciplined. And one thing I think that that does is there's an extrapolation of our of the way we would react to something. Forward, sure. Right. So Medicaid is free, and we would just grab it. Of course, we would just grab it. I've done a lot of not healthcare policy reporting. I've done that too, but actual just healthcare reporting. Right, going out with people who are doing programs in different cities and different areas, trying to help the people who end up costing the system the most. And one of the things that you learn from that is some of them are incredibly hard to help. A lot of these people who have less than a hundred percent of poverty, not all of them by any means, by any means, but a lot of these people, sometimes people don't have jobs in a steady way because they have really serious mental illness issues. Sure, sure. They're agoraphobic. They're terrified of the health system. They, they're very depressive. They're schizophrenic. Um, and that's why I think the work requirement for health insurance is not the right approach. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm yeah, with so you. That's why I'm yeah. bringing this up because not only is this important on a humanitarian level, but when you look at where our health costs are coming yeah. from, huge amounts of the costs come from a very small percentage of the population. Yeah. Now, some percentage has people who get a very costly illness, right? Yeah. They get a, a, a very rare form of cancer or, you know, you, you can pick your, your parade of horribles. But some of it also comes from people who match getting a costly illness with being very difficult to help. Mm-hmm. Um, and in other cases, we have found that the way to deal with this, there's been a tremendous revolution in homelessness policy by just recognizing that for the hardest cases, you just need to give them a place to live. Yeah. Right. And the George W. Bush administration was great about this. Utah was great about this. Right. A lot of Republicans realize that, you know what? These people are costing the system an incredible amount. They get sick. They get frostbite. Like they, it's terrible. Just give them a place to live. Right. And, one thing that has not been part of the discourse in this Republican um, health 
process has actually been cost control in the system itself. There's been a lot of talk about insurance. The Obama administration had a theory of how do you control cost and delivery system, right? You can say it was wrong or right. They wanted to get away from paying for volume to paying for quality, blah, 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 blah. Um, that's not really been present here. And one of the reasons I think that's bad is that I think it pulls us out of having a conversation that we need to have about how do you help people who maybe are hard to help, who sometimes don't want to be helped. And when you start getting all this stuff about, you know, it should be harder to access health insurance, right? You should have to pay more for it. You know, for people who are very inconsistently tied to the systems of of this country, for people who may be afraid of the government, I mean, there are all kinds of reasons this happens. Then you end up with them getting very, very sick. And even if you just want to take the green eyeshade view, not the humanitarian view, they end up costing the system a tremendous amount. Yeah. So let me respond to that because you've raised a lot of points in that in that. Uh uh, in that soliloquy. discussion, discussion. <laughs> uh, I was trying to find a, a more polite word than soliloquy. Monologue. Um, <laughs> that's a less polite word, I think. But uh, but I think there's a lot of important things you bring up there. And I would say, first of all, sometimes we expect health insurance to achieve too much for people. Its most important objective is financial security, economic security, to know that you're not going to go bankrupt due to medical bills. That is the fundamental purpose of insurance of any kind. And it's the most important purpose, in my view, of health insurance. And I think we all understand, those of us who do healthcare and healthcare policy, we all understand these, you know, that, that now there's now the trendy phrase, the social determinants of health, right? That we know that education attainment, for example, mm-hmm. has a huge correlation to health outcomes. There are a lot of other things that we need to think about and work on to make sure that, that people are living fulfilled and dignified and healthy lives that, that are beyond simply having health insurance, though health insurance is important too. And, and you're right that that conversation has kind of taken a back seat because of the, the, the political debate we're having now. I hope we we can revisit that when this whole process is over. But I do think that the health care bill, if it does what I hope and want it to, that it will lay the groundwork for that larger conversation. Because if you create a thriving and functional and robust market, which is what the ACA in a sense was trying to do but has struggled to do in the exchanges, if you create a thriving, robust and, and, and vibrant market where tens of millions of people are shopping for their own health insurance and getting the care they need and affording uh, the plans, you can build off of that. You can build off of that so that gradually over time more and more people are in that system. Less and less people are in the costly, obsolete uh, systems that we built in the 1940s and 1960s. And as we grow the piece of the pie that we've now reformed and built to work and gradually uh, allow that to kind of take market share, so to speak, from these legacy programs, I think you do see a lot of entrepreneurs out there eager to find ways to deliver high-quality health care to those individuals at a low cost who will now have the economic incentive to because of the fact that people are shopping in a competitive market for their health insurance and health care. So I do think that while cost isn't directly as much a part of this uh, discussion today as it could be, I do think this bill lays the groundwork for a lot of tools that could uh, lead to a better discussion, not just on cost, but the quality of delivery in the future. So I, I worry about that. And, and and the reason I brought this part of the discussion up in, in the place I did was around this discussion of work requirements and, you know, the the sort of the position popular among many conservatives that you really don't want to allow this kind of subsidy because you just want everything you can have pushing people to work. I, I read we had a piece today by. Uh, one of our writers that was looking at the push for TANF and welfare reform among uh, Freedom Caucus members. 
And the spokesman for Jim Jordan's was talking about this $200 billion cut, more than $200 billion they want to have for food stamps and TANF. He said, I was so stunned by this. He was talking about it being a work requirement. And he said, basically, if you are not willing to be out there trying to work and fulfilling this requirement to get this, you probably don't need it that much in the first place. So he said, so this is a cut that doesn't hurt anybody. And I was so taken aback by that. And I recognize, I mean, I'm not saying this guy's a bad guy. I'm sure he has a more, maybe he has a different view on it if I had a longer conversation with him about it and, 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 uh, and I'd like to have that. But I think that oftentimes conservatives have a very unsympathetic view of people who might be framed in sort of social policy terminology as the undeserving poor and are willing to let a lot of those folks go to pull out the ones who you could incentivize to push harder for work. You could incentivize to push harder for some kind of behavior that that we prize. But a lot of this is helping people who are tough to help. And a lot of this is helping people who don't always achieve our sympathy very easily or very, very, very frustrating. And I worry that you can't just get that through setting up market incentives well. That there is just a quality of like pushing out to them that you have to do. That is part of what the government does in some cases, Not always does not always do it well. I'm not confident in the entrepreneurs here. I actually think a lot of what we're seeing among health entrepreneurs is are really good for people like me. It's like a million ways that somebody who loves spreadsheeting his own healthcare indicators can spreadsheet his own healthcare indicators. Like, it's great. There's definitely a, a component of that in what we're like, seeing. Like, I worry sure. that we're going to see a lot of health inequality come out of this kind of stuff mm. before we see uh, – an, yeah. an and, and that's a and that's a longer discussion, right? Is the fact that technology actually allows people who are disciplined yeah. and active and care about their health to do even better than the people who don't have. Yeah. Those, now, I believe it'll filter traits. down over time. I'm yeah. not saying these kinds yeah, yeah. of innovations aren't good, but they're not an answer. Yeah. And so I do really worry that there is a strain. There's a very powerful strain of conservative thinking um, that a lot of the people who would be implementing a plan like this do believe in that does not take these people's problems as seriously as we need to. So, you know, one of the reasons, in fact, the main reason I started the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity is because I did agree, I do agree with you and and, and did agree at that time that, that there was a gap in conservative thinking about this, that there were, I do support work requirements for welfare in general, and Bill Clinton did too, right? That was when it was all, you know, the whole controversial welfare reform of the 90s. Uh, Scott Winship, who's on our board of advisors at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, has done a great a great body of work on this, I think that's to me persuasive that overall, the way the welfare system was reformed in the 1990s was a success. I know on the progressive side that there's a very strong disagreement with that. So our, I do, third, our third podcast will be all about I bring that up to say that work requirements, in my view, uh, have value in certain contexts. I think when it comes to cash welfare, I think work requirements have value. You know, I was having an argument with uh, or a discussion with one of my uh, colleagues in another think tank who was talking about work requirements in the healthcare sense. And I'm like, the way I think about work requirements in healthcare is the way I think about work requirements in education. We would never say to a parent, you need to have a job in order to send your kid to a public school. We would see that as ridiculous. Um, and I think of healthcare more in that way than I think of it in the cash welfare sense. Can I ask a question about that? Because this is something I always wonder. I think there are versions of the welfare reform that could have really worked out. Um, I think at this point, it really hasn't worked out. But but one reason I'm very skeptical of it is for that exact reason, that often the the people who really suffer are children, right? That 
do you have families? I mean, the way welfare worked, it's very overwhelmingly biased towards families. Like it's very, very hard if you can even get it um, as, as a single person. I'm not sure you can. You cut the parents off. And yeah, maybe the parents are doing the wrong things. Maybe the parents are doing everything wrong, right? They're taking drugs and they're not working and they're not looking for a job and all of it. And there's still some group of them who stay that way and their kids suffer, right? And we've seen a real rise in extreme poverty among children in this country. And it has not seemed to me that the political system has decided to take that seriously. Like when we say welfare reform is a success, for who? Yes, we've spent less money, but what about those kids? Like what about that extreme poverty? Well, so so conservatives have a different point of view on this, which I share, which is that the drivers of poverty are more driven by uh, – well, there's there's a number of different factors. The overall economy is one. But but independent of the broader economy and how it's doing, one of the biggest drivers – the biggest two, the two biggest drivers of, of poverty are we have these neighborhoods in which poverty is endemic, and that creates a sort of a community of poverty that's very hard to lift out from. And another big challenge, which is related – is family formation and breakdown as it relates to poverty. There's now an enormous amount of empirical research that shows that uh, when kids don't uh, grow up in intact families, that's highly correlated uh, to to poverty. And so there are conservatives who say the, the old welfare system, the pre-1996 welfare system, encouraged more of that uh, than we have today. I, I think that, that that is – I'm not totally with them on that, but I would say that Purely just saying we're going to have – we're going to lighten up on the welfare reform requirements and we're going to spend more money supporting the cash welfare to me isn't necessarily going to solve those more intractable problems. No, I don't think it will. What what upsets me about welfare reform and recognizing this would be a very long other conversation but is that yes, I can completely imagine versions of welfare reform, even versions that are along these lines that could have been updated and worked on to work. Mm-hmm. But we did a reform. It did some things that were positive. But clearly, clearly, clearly did many that were negative. And particularly what we found is that the reform does not expand to deal with recessions at all, right? The It did nothing during the recession. It was actually an That's extraordinary That's a challenge with block grants, right? So if you have a block grant, the block grant is not countercyclical because the block grant, the but, amount you're getting as it, from the federal government's paying the state doesn't change with that, recessions. That is, but I would reframe what you just said. That is a challenge if you don't make it a priority to solve it. It's not technically difficult. Right. It's not technically an impossible problem to solve. Oh, yeah. It's actually technically a very simple problem to solve. But one thing that's a theme in sort of what I'm pushing to you here is that there are a lot of uh, problems that I raise that, of course, it can be solved. Of course. I am worried about things being implemented by people who do not want to solve them. I think I think you, there's a there's a combination, right? So there's there's a view among conservatives, which is just different from progressives in terms of economic incentives for example, of tax policy, economic incentives of welfare policy, to what, where is the right balance to make sure that we are providing a robust safety net to the people who truly need the help while not uh, diminishing people's incentives to actually participate in the workforce when they're capable of it, right? And what is the right, the right balance? That is a hard balance to strike with federal policy, let alone state or local policy. And conservatives and progressives will always be on different sides of exactly where that balance should be. But I think that's a perfectly reasonable and appropriate debate to have. The second piece of what you've described is, well, should we even help them at all? And I, I think there is a caucus, a cohort, shall we say, of people saying, you know what? 
a classic Trump voter, right? He says, I work my butt off every day. I work, you know, I don't make a lot of money. I'm not rich. And yet my taxes are going to pay for that guy who sits over there and doesn't work. And, you know, J.D. Vance's book, you know, writes about the stories and when he was growing up in, in Ohio, uh, where he saw that, where a lot of the, his family and, and neighbors and friends, that's what they saw in the world around them and were really af- deeply offended by that, right? And that's, that's to a degree what, what, what a lot of, uh, conservatives or Trump voters, which aren't necessarily the same thing, see. They see the, the weakness of the current policy is, yes, we're helping the deserving poor, the people who really need the help, but there are also a lot of people who could stand up on their own two feet and uh, and aren't doing so. So where do we strike the balance? I think that's – I think the left gives – short trip to the debate in a certain way and and conservatives might give short trip to it in a certain way and and that's just politics right and, and policy debates that we're going to continue to have ovik roy thank you very much ezra it was great uh thank you to ovik that was really really uh, helpful for me i hope you all enjoyed it uh thank you of course to my producer bert pinkerton before we head out i want to give one quick plug worldly our new podcast vox's new podcast on foreign policy with Yochi Driesen and Jen Williams and Zach Beecham. It is excellent. It is uh, happening now. We're on the second episode now. I have listened to both of them and they are both great and I learned a tremendous amount. If you like this podcast, you will like that one. Again, it is called Worldly and you can download it wherever you download your favorite podcasts. The Ezra Klein Show is on the Vox Media Podcast Network and we'll be back next week.